Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. It's Monday, May 6th. I'm your host, Jason Moser. On today's show, have a little bit of a different uh, different spin on things here. We're bringing in Dylan Lewis today for a real life financial. I don't want to call it a crisis, but it's 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 a situation, and we want to learn more about what's going on there and how we might be able to help him. We've uh, as always got one to watch for you this week, but we're beginning this week with another installment of Between Two Fools. You may have heard a few months back, we brought four new analysts onto our investing team with Motley Fool. And what better way to introduce you to them than through the magic of the podcast and Between Two Fools? This week, we're introducing you to Maria Gallagher. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Okay, Maria, first things first. Tell us who you are and tell us how you got here to the Fool. Well, hello. My name's Maria Gallagher. Um, I think I have kind of a unique and interesting story. I got into investing a lot later than most people. So I, in college, studied psychology. I had a pretty specific track about what I wanted to do. And then I did an internship in that, and I didn't actually like it the way I thought I would. And so then I did another internship and ended up being at an investing firm, and I kind of fell in love with it. And that was my senior year of college. And so as I was graduating college, I was applying to a bunch of jobs and internships, and I ended up getting an internship here last summer. So I was an intern down in the asset management department. I thought you looked familiar. Yeah. <laughs> so I was actually here for eight months before I joined the investing team. I was an intern over the summer, and then I was doing someone's job while she was on maternity leave uh, down in asset management. And then I made the leap upstairs uh, in January. So I remember going through your interview process, and we were excited that you had applied because we knew your psych background. And investing, while it involves a lot of critical thinking and number crunching and whatnot, it also involves a lot of psychology in emotions take place. And we, we felt like having that psychology background could lend to some some great investing qualities that you could grow over time. Uh, now, speaking of investing qualities, you know when when you get here, part of the challenge is trying to figure out what kind of investor you are. And a lot of times, we'll see people frame it as, "Oh, I'm a value investor," or oh, "I'm a growth investor," or "I'm somewhere in between," or "I'm something entirely different." Um, given that you are still young in the investing world. Have you thought about any what kind of investor you are? Do you have a, do you have a firm take on that yet, or are you still trying to figure that out? Um, I was thinking about this. I definitely don't think I fit into one sort of box. I'm a millennial, so I don't love labels. It's uh-huh. one of our one of our tenants. But I think when I was trying to label it, I would say that right now I would qualify myself as an excited investor. So anything that I find interesting and exciting is something that I will look at. Um, so right now I'm very interested in the ESG space. I'm interested in international investing. And so anything that really piques my interest, I don't rule anything out as of right now. I think that's a good perspective. That's what I consider myself, too. When I got here, there were a lot of people here at The Fool. Uh, it was a very strong value uh, investing uh, bent. And I wasn't quite sure what I was in sort of learning as I went along, David Gardner, I think, really opened my eyes to a lot of different ways to see the world and to think about investing. And I ultimately came to that same conclusion. I consider myself just a motley investor. I mean, I'm okay with going anywhere, and the more I can learn, the better. Um, it sounds like that is uh, the direction you're headed as well. It's I'm a fun sure place to be. Yeah, we'll have a lot to talk about in the coming <laughs> years, hopefully. Um, since you got here, and you've, you've been here now for several months investing and learning and, and uh, finding your way, but what have you learned in regard to investing since you've gotten here that surprised you or something maybe that you weren't expecting? 
Uh, wow, I've learned so many really, really interesting things. I think the broadest thing I could think of that was surprising was just I am a fan of pretty strict rules, and I thought that there would be, you know, this is the right and the wrong way. And I think the most fun and the thing that I really, really enjoy about investing is that there's no hard and fast rules about anything. So a lot of times when you ask questions, the answer you'll get is, it depends, (laughs) which is kind of frustrating when you're trying to learn because you want a discrete answer, but it's actually makes it really enjoyable because everything's so malleable and it's moving and it's sector dependent, industry dependent. So it just has a long runway for um, just like learning new things. So I've really enjoyed that, but it's been really uh, interesting to see that it's not as hard and fast as a lot of people might think. No, I mean, think. you think about the, the whole process of investing, you're buying stocks or selling stocks. I mean, there are two sides on every transaction. For every seller, there's a buyer, and for every buyer, there's a seller. And, and usually, both parties think they're right. And so, how that actually works out, it can be a little bit difficult to frame sometimes. A lot of times, though, I think it really just boils down to timeline. I think that's probably one of our bigger advantages here is is being able to take that longer view and being able to be patient, um, understanding there are no hard and fast rules, and being able to change your mind when the facts warrant it. Yeah, that's, I think, the hardest thing that people don't talk about as much as once you've made your decision, having the ability to then change your mind. It's, it's okay. really it's difficult. It's yeah. difficult to do, but I think the more you do it, the easier it gets. And, and I think that um, you learn pretty quickly, I mean, investing is going to humble everyone. You're not going to get everything right. None of us does. Um, but being able to change your mind, I think, is one of the greater qualities out there. The facts are always changing. I mean, things are always always different when you wake up in the morning. And um, and being able to keep open mind uh, is is a valuable quality as an investor. And speaking of valuable qualities, what would you say? And this doesn't have to be here necessarily. It can be any time in your life. What is the best piece of investing advice that you've ever gotten? Um, so when I was thinking about this, I think I'm going to talk about uh, something I learned while I was here. So one of the people we work with, Abby Malin, was talking to me as I was making um, one of my first DCF models, and she said, similar to what you were just saying, you know, <laughs> there's no chance you're going to be 100% right. That's just not <laughs> possible. But making sure that every input is defensible and every argument you're making is uh, sound, and you have a reason to back up your argument, and that's been really valuable. Just in DCF models specifically, but just in talking about companies, no one's really 100% able to predict the future, but just having ideas that you can back up and um, having them be defensible, I think, was really, really useful advice to know. Yeah, I think that is tremendous advice. I mean, a DCF model or any kind of earnings model, um, or whether you're going on multiples, I mean, it, it, it's more about how the input numbers affect the company, uh, you know, in, in the way of profitability and whatnot. I mean, you got Sales that translates into operating income that translates into you know earnings per share. There are all sorts of inputs there that can affect one business versus another because there's so many different business models out there. So that's that's an interesting take there. And I know that when it comes to valuation, um, certainly one of the things I learned early on, and and I think I think David Meyer was really the guy that that opened my eyes to this was to make sure you have as many tools as possible in your investing toolbox and being able to approach valuation from a number of different ways. Yeah. And, um, and and I found that to be extremely helpful because I certainly put that into practice even today in, in never getting married to that number that it spits out. The stock is worth this. It's more about understanding how the numbers affect what the stock may be worth and then trying to assess the probabilities that one outcome is 
more likely than another or another way around. Yeah, that's so helpful, especially also going back to psychology, you not wanting to anchor onto that number and making decisions based on that one specific thing is Anchoring. really, really valuable. Anchoring is very, and that's a tough one. It's really easy it's to get so, made of those numbers. It's so hard. Have you have you learned about the um, adding to your winners mentality yet? Have you spoken with David Gardner about that adding to your winners mentality? I don't think so. So, I mean, I think a lot of people, they view buying stocks as you want to buy it on a dip, you want to buy it on sale, you want to buy it cheap. And, and David Gardner's uh, notion is that adding to winners makes more sense because the stock price is going up for a reason. The stock price is going up because the business is doing well. So, it's okay to buy stocks on the way up because that means you're buying into a very good business. And that was one of those things that I learned early on from him. And it's difficult to do in practice, but I think also the more you do it, the easier it gets. And adding to your winners is really a fun way to invest because it logically makes sense. The stock price is going up for a reason. Usually, it's because the business is doing well. And don't you want to buy businesses that are doing well? I do. (laughs) (laughs) That's the kind of investor I am, one that buys companies doing well. Good, good, good. Um, Okay, let's get outside of the investing world here for a second and just tell us something interesting about you, something that's happened in your life, something that you want our listeners to know. Um, so I'm actually I was thinking about this. This is one of my favorite fun facts about myself. I am kind of famous. I don't know oh, really? how yeah. I don't know how you feel about um like food TV shows. If I love you're a them. big fan, how I love them. do you like Man vs. Food? I do, but you know what? I'd say if I have a real guilty pleasure, it's gonna be Triple D. It's Guy Fieri and Di- Diners, Drive-Ins okay. and Dives. I mean, that is just my my wife has to take the remote away at one point because <laughs> Friday nights just get really dangerous in our it's, house. That's a great choice. So <laughs> I I was a waitress in college uh, for two years at the same restaurant, and um, it's called Boston Burger Company. It's up in oh. Boston. That was on Diners, Drive-Ins and Dives. But nice. It was a Guy. Fieri Gary was there before I got there, but one one weekend I was waitressing and I walked in and they didn't warn us, but they said, "Just so you know, you're all going to be on TV." And I was like, "Well, good just, thing I showered this morning. Good thing I came in prepared." Um, and there were just a ton of cameras, and so I was promised. I haven't actually watched the episode, but I was promised that some of like my arms are on an episode of Man vs. Food, um, and I'm. Like handing people food, they did actually. I can carry four plates, and they did take my plates away to hand to the host, and he could only do two, so he's not he's not as good of a waitress as I am. Well, maybe the you know, I mean, if it's just your arms and your hands, I mean, I don't know if you watch Seinfeld, but you remember George Costanza? He they discovered his hands, he became a hand model. Maybe <laughs> there's a future. You, know? you never know. Gr- that's a great episode of Seinfeld. <laughs> I actually love George Costanza. If I could relate to one character on TV more than anyone, it's George Costanza. Always just look busy, no matter what, <laughs> even when. When you're not. Yeah. All right, let's wrap this up for our listeners because really, you know, you are here as a member of the investing team to research stocks, to find good ideas, to cover these good ideas, and to communicate those ideas to our members. It's something we get to do every day. It's a privilege. We enjoy it. I want to give you a chance to tell our listeners out there today what is one stock that you like today and a couple of reasons why. Uh, so I chose a stock that I, you also really like, and we've talked about this before. Um, I talk, I'm going to talk about Etsy. So I I've heard of it. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Etsy, both as a consumer and as an investor. Um, they topped 3.9 billion dollars in gross merchandise sales last year. That's a 20 percent year-over-year growth rate, and then they have this massive total addressable market of over 1.7 trillion dollars. And I think. 
that they have this really strong competitive advantage because Etsy has carved itself out into this really great niche of you go there to buy something special. And so if I want to get you a gift, I'm not going to say, I got you something super, super special. You know, <laughs> I went to Amazon, I went to Walmart. You're not going to think that I went really out of my way to get you something. Whereas Etsy, you feel really connected, I think, to that. Uh, that object that you get. So, I think it's a great company. I'm with you. I own shares in Etsy, and I think it's been pretty amazing how they've been able to defend themselves. And really, what is an Amazon world? That was the big question when they came public, was how are they going to fend off that Amazon competition? And I think it's really because of what you just said there. They developed that core sort of niche audience in, in what they do. It is something unique. It's something special. Maybe it's not going to be as big as Amazon will be, but that's not the point. We don't expect that. I think it's a good business, and uh, CEO Josh Silverman has done a lot uh, in a short amount of time to get that business going in the right direction. And um, so I'm, I'm going to hang on to my shares, and I hope it keeps on going. Have you ever bought something on Etsy? Um, you know, to come to think of it, I don't think I've ever actually purchased something. Now, I know my wife has, and I will also say that my younger daughter and I went through the process of looking up setting up a slime shop for her. Oh, on nice. Etsy. Because back in like fifth and sixth grade, slime was all the rage. These kids were selling that. at school all over the place. And she was inquiring about maybe opening, opening up her little slime store. And I remember going through that process and thinking, wow, this is really robust. It's a, it's a tremendous marketplace. And the nice thing about that marketplace, it's just the network, really. Etsy's not carrying all that inventory. They're just providing the marketplace for people to connect. And yeah. that, that's the kind of business I like. Did she open up a slime shop? We decided not to at the last uh. minute because it was asking for too much of my banking information, <laughs> and I wasn't ready to take that leap. Fair. So we just let her set up a profile on Instagram, and and that got accomplished. What I think she was hoping to do, and now she's in seventh uh, seventh grade, and slime slime was so yesterday. Slime slime is no <laughs> no longer cool, no longer fun. No. Well, Maria Gallagher, thanks so much for taking the time to stop by today. Thanks for having me. And now joining me in the studio, as promised, he's not on Skype, he's here in person. It's Dylan Lewis. Dylan, what is up? You know, it's so nice to be sitting in the studio <laughs> yeah. with you, Jason. We haven't really done a ton of stuff together before. No, so. no, we do a little bit here and there. I think I think we're we're starting to get our uh, our, our schedules starting to line up. Yeah, the report's getting there too. I will say, listeners don't really have a lens into this because they only get the finished product on the show. That's right. I just got to watch you tape the entire introduction because you're doing you know a little splicing here oh, and there yeah, for yeah, yeah. for the segments. Crystal clear, wow. super clean. That doesn't happen when I'm doing those reads. <laughs> <laughs> well, trust me, when I took this hosting gig for Monday, it, it was a very different being on the other side of the table. I'm still not quite used to it, but having worked with Chris Hill for so many years, that's where I was taking most of my notes. Hey, yeah, I mean, you just you got the best example you can possibly have with Chris. Just try to emulate it as much as you can. Exactly. And before we get started, I do want to remind everybody. You know, it was a Berkshire Hathaway kind of weekend, and while we're not going to rehash everything that went on uh, in Omaha over the weekend. You will want to tune into Thursday's episode of Industry Focus, the Energy Show, where Nick Seipel is going to be digging deeper into the Berkshire Occidental Anadarko deal uh, and more, I'm sure. So make sure to give that a listen on Thursday. I think you'll uh, be be very happy if, if you're interested in what's going on in, in the world of Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, but Dylan, let's go ahead and get into why you're here. You pinged me on Slack last week, shot this across my radar. I thought it was a great idea. Uh, so, why don't you take it away here? Explain to our listeners what's going on in your life and how can we help? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, a couple of years ago, my mom approached me and said, um, you know, I have this stock that I've inherited and uh, your grandfather, 
her father, uh, had worked at H&R Block for quite some time uh, as a seasonal tax preparer. And I think he wound up taking some form of his compensation there as stock. And he had passed away. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he knew what he was doing long term, right? Um, And so, he had passed away uh, right around when I was born in 1990. And my mom inherited some shares when he passed away. And I think because of the sentimental value that came with that and just the, the difficulty of him passing and all that kind of stuff, she never really was able to bring herself to do anything yeah. with the stock. And so she approached me and said, you know, I'd like to give you these shares. You're a little bit more versed in this world and, you know, you might be able to do something with it if you have, you know, long-term plans. This would be a great little cash cushion to give you so that you can kind of get going on whatever that might be. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing I mean, wrong I with that. I think I heard at some point it sounds like he may be walking down an aisle at one point or another. I mean, there's going to be a house involved. He probably got some <laughs> traveling. Next thing you know, you got kids. I mean, you need this money, man. I'm going to tell my girlfriend not to listen to this episode. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All of that. That aside, seriously, this is, I think, a great topic because I'm sure there are a lot of people out there that have been faced with this type of situation, and and there are there's a lot of nuance that comes with it. Um, I think really the first question that comes to my mind, and I guess really to yours, is is this? Do you want to continue to own this stock, or or is it? You know, do you, do you want to own something else? Right. I mean, that's that's ultimately the capital allocation decision yeah. we all have to make all the time, right? And and I think um, it's really easy to think of capital allocation if you're a portfolio manager, right? Or if you're a business, if you're a CFO, you're always thinking about where your money's going. Well, you're your own CFO, right? No, no one's going to be controlling the finances in your accounts a little bit better than you. You have the best insight into all of that, and every dollar you put somewhere isn't going somewhere else. So, so yeah, that was exactly where I was going with this. Is I have a very large chunk of money now. <laughs> uh, now that both of those gifts have gone through in stock that I don't really know all that much about, and I didn't personally buy. It's actually multiples of my next largest holding. So a lot of my returns are going to skew based on how that stock does. Yeah, and and I think uh, I mean multiples of your largest holding. I, that's significant. I mean, we get the question all the time about capital allocation and how many holdings and whatnot. But anytime you have a position that is multiples of, of your biggest, I mean, that's when you probably need to take a look and think. All right, is this causing me to lose sleep at night? If so, uh, what can I do about that? And given given the size of the position, I mean, it strikes me immediately that well, this doesn't have to all go into just one other idea, right? I mean, I think in theory. Really, you could you could break this up into a few different investments, which probably is not a bad idea. Yeah, yeah. And to put a number to it, I think it's around like sixteen thousand okay. dollars or so. So, so there's a lot of flexibility with that kind of number. Can go into stocks. Can can kind of go into some other life stuff that I might have come down the pike at some point, as you might have teed up there, Jason. Um, and so, so yeah, it's just kind of all right. I need to take stock here. See what's going on, and see if this is something that I really want to continue holding. I'll probably always maintain a small little position, sure. just just as a little nod to Earl Lyon, yep. my grandfather. But yeah, it's too big for me to ignore at this point. Yeah, and I mean, I, I tell you, I think the first thing. So I put my analyst hat on, obviously dug into Cap IQ to to learn more about H and R Block. I mean, I knew the business as a consumer. Um, I had never really looked at it, you know, from a from an analyst perspective. And, it, and you know, I wouldn't put this up there at the top of my list as far as ones that I want to own today. Not that it it doesn't serve. A good purpose. I mean, I think this really is a very well-known name in the market it pursues, right? I mean, this is the tax preparer, and probably everybody out there has, has even used it once before, if not, if not, you know, regularly. Um, 
But I think when you when you look at the stretch of finances, you look at one of the things I always look for with a company is how are they growing their top line, the revenue number, sales. How is that going? Because if if you know if it's stagnant, then you have questions that you have to ask. If it's growing, then hey, I mean growth is great. Uh, the one thing that struck me here with H and R Block is that that top line is very stagnant. It doesn't seem like they're growing, and that makes sense. I think as technology has uh, disrupted so many things in our lives, certainly tax preparation is another one. Um, I mean, between things like TurboTax uh, and and whatnot, I mean, there are all sorts of different ways to to prepare taxes. Um, so maybe people less and less want to go to a place to have their taxes done. Uh, maybe they're figuring out ways to get them done themselves. You, I know, uh, do some some pro bono tax work yourself, uh, don't you? I do. Yeah. So I volunteer through Vita. So I have a little bit of an insight yeah. into uh, you know the tax prep world. You know, I, I'm new to establishing myself as an analyst with this company and kind of really understanding what's going on. But um, yeah, I do volunteer tax prep. If you are below certain income levels um, in a lot of major cities, a lot of areas, you can get your taxes done for free um, by a volunteer. Preparer, and it's a great program. Um, probably meets a different group of people than a lot of the clients going into H&R Block and TurboTax. Although, if you're going there and you fall into that income limit, you might be able to do it for free elsewhere. Something to keep in mind. Yeah. Although that's a commercial against the stock that I own, I guess. I, well, I was just going to say that's <laughs> great for people, but probably not great for H&R Block because that's yet another way to get your uh, taxes done where you're not really putting money into their coffers. And ultimately, I mean, when you look at that play out on their financials, I mean, the top line stagnating really trickles down into every aspect of the business um, in, in its balance sheet it is not the healthiest in the world. I mean, they do have a, a pretty decent slug of debt on there. Um, you know, when I think about the optionality of the business, I mean, they've been kind of stuck in that tax world for a while. I don't know there's there's much they could do outside of that. And consequently, you've got a business that's uh, hanging in maybe around a five six billion dollar market cap. It's been around for a while, so you, I, I kind of thought it would have been bigger. Um, so I was a little bit surprised at the size. Yeah, and this is a case study in why you need to look at all of the financial statements, yeah. right? <laughs> because and all the lines on the financial statements, because you go down, EPS has been climbing up. Net income has been climbing up 600 million in 2018, up from 420 million in 2017. That seems good. Well, that's really due to tax reform. Yeah. <laughs> that really doesn't have a lot to do with their operational business. The top line's been hanging out around $3 billion, I think, for like the last four years. Not a lot of growth there. Management talks often about the different markets that tax prep goes into. There's the assisted market, which is where you think of classic HR block. You go into a store, it's brick and mortar, someone's helping you out, helping you fill out your forms. Then there's DIY, which is much more of the TurboTax type preparation. The assisted tax prep market's going down, and DIY is going up. H&R Block has some software plays in there, and they're investing in virtual. But really, TurboTax is the name there. Yeah, we've. I mean, TurboTax, which is part of the Intuit family. It's another foolish recommendation here that's done very well, and we know why. It's because they've just done such a great job capitalizing on that brand. I mean, it is unmistakable what they do, TurboTax. Um, and going back to the financials there with H&R Block, uh, you know, your point there about how when you get down to those bottom line numbers, all sorts of things can really play into those, and it can create a little bit of a misleading picture. And when you look at net income and earnings per share, you're thinking, wow, this company's growing. You explain why maybe it wasn't. And when you take a look at the operating earnings of the company, when you look at operating income, which really, that tells you how the core of the business is doing. And that's where they have a harder time fudging those numbers. And you can see the operating operating income essentially has done what top line revenue has done. It's just, it's not going anywhere, um, which then leads me to my 
analyst call here, man. Okay, we need to put you into something else, right? I think you probably are better served uh, reallocating this money. And um, I mean, I have some ideas. I feel like maybe we should be soliciting listeners, though, too. Do you have any ideas? I would love to get some listener ideas. Um, I am trying to build out some SaaS positions. I, sp- I spent a lot of time on the tech show talking about software as a service companies. Uh, they're fun ones to talk about because yep. they're high growth businesses and generally the business models are very predictable, very stable. You know, once you get people in sticky service, I mean, we can talk about that with Intuit, right? Yep. Strong business. Once you use TurboTax once, they have all your information preloaded. You're going to go back. You think about that on an enterprise side where you have hundreds of people at a company maybe using some type of software. It's a very compelling business model. And so, so I think that's probably where I'll be focusing with some of the dollars that I get from selling some of this stuff. Um, but yeah, I think I think it's time to trim this position down just a little bit. Well, you know, Dylan, I just because everything, every all the companies have reported, and I, I went ahead and just published this morning the uh, an update on the war on cash basket. Just you know, getting it out there. I mean, that's four different holdings in Visa and Mastercard and PayPal and Square. The basket since inception, which is mid two thousand seventeen, I think, is up one hundred percent versus the market's nineteen or so. You know, hey, listen, those are some pretty, pretty reputable players in their space as well. And money's going to keep going from point A to point B, right? You know, I am not a financials guy, <laughs> but I am a fintech guy. And, and I have some PayPal and I have some Square. I haven't gotten into some of those credit card names, but maybe it's time I give them a look, Jason. What about Markel Insurance? This is another one I was thinking of because I, you said SaaS, and I was making this joke that Markel's not sexy like SaaS, but that's beside the point. Do you own any Markel? I don't own any Markel. Okay. This is the baby Berkshire. Is yeah, that right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's. Um, that's that's the baby Berkshire. It is uh, an insurance company built very much in that mold. They actually have the Markel brunch, which is held the day after the Berkshire Hathaway meeting. Um, so I had the good fortune to go to that one year when I was out there, and Tom Gaynor has, has come to speak with us here at the Fool before. Um, another one worth looking looking at. Uh, you know, in insurance companies are that's an interesting market for sure. Reputable insurers. Uh, they can make some very good investments, and, and Markel is, is no exception there. So that could be another one to to consider. But it sounds like we also need to reach out to our listeners. Hey, I love getting stock ideas. I also love getting ideas for episodes. I think that's one of the most fun things about being host of a show is you get someone writing in saying, "I, you know, I'd love for you to do a teardown of this S one." Yep. Boom. A week later, we've got it for you. How there fun you is that? And that's and we love doing it too. So I mean, this is our call, right? This is our call to everyone out there listening right now. Uh, reach out to us either uh, via email at industryfocus at fool com or hit us up on Twitter at mfindustryfocus. And let us know what uh, where do you think Dylan needs to be putting this money? I mean, if you got some good ideas out there, we want to hear them. I know he does, and I do too. And hey, I'm sure it's going to make for uh, for some good future show material as well. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a follow up right there. One thing I want to hit before we wrap things up, Jason, yes, is if you are in this position uh, as a listener, um, investor, and you are either receiving or about to receive uh, some shares as a gift or you're considering giving someone shares. There are a lot of different considerations for that, and it is definitely worth at least reading up on the IRS website, possibly consulting a tax professional before you decide to do that, Mm -hmm. because how you do that 
may create or totally avoid a big tax liability for you or the recipient. Yeah, that's really good advice. And it's it's impossible to sit there and give tax advice that just cookie cutter fits to everyone's situation. And I'm sure you probably some people probably fell asleep right at the point where you said <laughs> IRS website. But you know what I've found is when I have those questions, that IRS website really is it's the most valuable source. I mean, that is where the information is, and and they have answers to virtually every question there. Uh, so you can get it from there instead of getting it from someone where you may not even know if they know what they're talking about. Uh, of course, we know what we're talking about here, though. We like we? to think so. Yeah, we like to think so. Um, okay, as always, we wrap up the show with one to watch. And Dylan, I'm going to let you kick this off. What is the stock you have on your radar this week? Well, I mean, you know, I cover tech, sure. right? Yeah. So one of the biggest IPOs, possibly of the decade. Yeah. Going up this week. Beyond Meat. Uber. <laughs> Beyond Meat already have. Come on, Beyond Meat. You know, I've been tempted to buy a Beyond Meat <laughs> that was burger. Insane, man. Those burgers are expensive. They are. Well, I mean, did you see what that stock did at that? It's like 145% or something. It's just ridiculous. The burgers make the stock look cheap. Yes, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Um, I am watching the Uber IPO. We have talked about Uber plenty on the tech show. And, you know, the guidance I always give people is, even if you are dead set on buying shares of a newly public company, you'll love the business model. We've seen this with several IPOs so far in 2019. Give it a little time. Yep. You know, the financials might be interesting. There might be a lot of really awesome tailwinds there for that business. Give it a little time for the demand and the supply of shares to settle out. So maybe you can get a little bit more of a reasonable price. If you want to get a small position early, I understand, but Really, it pays to sit on the sidelines for a little while. I, I couldn't agree more, and you know that reminds me. I'll one of these days I'll jump into uh, telling you a story about how I broke my own rule with Eventbrite here and got called on that recently. <laughs> but uh, yep, it's it's your point is very well taken there. Just give it some time. Uh, well, I'll stick with the car theme. I'm actually going to watch Tesla, and the main reason why and I was talking about this on Market Foolery earlier is just the, the fun back and forth that Buffett and Musk were having in regard to Tesla. Looking at getting an insurance. I mean, that was all fun and games. I mean, for me, like, listen, I, I, I'm a big Elon Musk fan. I support everything he's doing. I'm not an investor in Tesla, although I do think I would buy into SpaceX without even looking at the S1 if I ever had the opportunity. Um, I, I do wonder why he feels like going into insurance with Tesla really is even something that needs to be done. I'm not sure, given his track record of behavior, that uh, he's someone that most people would be wanting to buy peace of mind from. And that's really ultimately what insurance is. Um, insurance is hard. It's a lot of regulation involved, a lot of capital involved. And, and there's, there's a lot of decision-making that has to be done based on data. I mean, there are actuaries that really spend their lives plugging this 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 stuff together, trying to come up with risk models that make sense. I just don't know that really the juice is worth the squeeze there. But you know, I mean, he seems to have no limits, whether it's space or candy or insurance or otherwise. <laughs> yeah, I wonder with this, you know, what's what's the end goal and what's the competitive advantage that yeah. they bring, right? Because you look at some of the fintech companies. And you can say, okay, well, we're collecting data in a slightly different way. We might have a slightly more advanced look at some of our customers and their creditworthiness. That's a competitive advantage. I'm not sure that Tesla right now has a competitive advantage in pricing insurance. Yes, I agree. And 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 maybe 
they come to their senses and decide not to do it. Or maybe they put something out there that's just awesome and completely uh, just astound all of us. I guess we'll just have to wait and see. Uh, but hey, listen, Dylan, this was a great idea. Thanks for coming in today. Yeah, what a treat, Jason. All right, man. Well, as always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Today's show is produced by Austin Morgan. For Dylan Lewis and Maria Gallagher, I'm Jason Moser. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. We'll be right back.